0: feel sorry for all of you. The, the sun, I mean, you've got to stay awake because I can see your faces very clearly with the sun shining on you. Uh, you have to be in your best behavior if you sit in those seats. Uh, for the whole next month, the, the sun moves in an in a interesting, divine, divinely providential way across the congregation, you'll see. And so we'll enjoy that together as we get into December. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 23, and so please turn there with me. I have most of the verses there for you on the insert, but there are a couple that I couldn't fit. Um, but again, these, these are riveting accounts. These are the inspired accounts of uh, actual events that happened uh, by the uh, doctor, the theologian, the historian, the Bible writer, Luke. Uh, he is writing the story of Paul's ministry now. Really, he's writing the story of Jesus' ongoing expansion of his church in the early years after his ascension. Uh, in a little more than 10 years, Paul has been used by God to establish the church in provinces provinces uh, of the empire, all four of them, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before 47 AD, there were no churches in those provinces. In AD 57, Paul spoke in his letters as though they had been evangelized. In other words, the name of Christ had been proclaimed in all those places. And he was effectively winding down his missionary efforts, at least the planned ones that went from churches. He has many more missionary efforts in his speeches and even a little bit in the midst of his between jail times. Uh, But this is really uh, the summation of his ministry in those uh, different efforts in the provinces. And now he finds himself in Jerusalem, for the final time. At least he thinks this way. We left Paul under the guardianship of the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias. You remember he is the Roman commander who had at his charge over 600 Roman soldiers. Um, He was there to keep peace and security in the temple complex. One of the most difficult jobs of all the Roman army. And he was a very competent man. Claudius took a sort of liking to Paul. He protected him, but especially when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen. Now he was under even more duty to make sure Paul was not injured or harmed or killed by the Jewish Sanhedrin and the crowds that were upset with Paul's return to Jerusalem. So he was holding Paul custody, but still didn't understand all that was behind the anger towards him. So he decided to let an informal hearing take place, with leaders from the Sanhedrin. This wasn't a formal court case. This was something that happened um, impromptu a bit, where Claudius wanted to hear what were the charges against Paul and wanted to gauge what the demeanor was towards him. He's trying to learn what's happening. And of course, the Jewish leaders take advantage of this and try to immediately bring him to death. That's what we see unfold in the passage before us. For us, there's much to be gathered, but just the boldness of Paul, um, the, the courage that he has because of Christ is an encouragement to all of us when we think about having to say or do hard things for Christ. Acts 23, please hear as I read God's word. I'll read verse 1 down to verse 24. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor." Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency and impact on our lives. I ask that you would guide our consideration of this passage from the book of Acts this morning. May we rightly understand what is being communicated and where there are applications to be made. Give us your spirit's aid in living out the truths that we are exposed to. We see your sovereign hand upon the expansion of your kingdom, even against hateful opposition, and we are encouraged. We are comforted. Your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Pray this in Christ. Amen. With Paul's missionary efforts, at least his planned missionary efforts, effectively done, having established churches in four provinces, Paul turns his gaze to Jerusalem where he believes his last real mission lies with his countrymen, those he loves so much who are rejecting Christ, those with all the roots, all the background, all the foreshadowing, the temple itself, picturing the the presence of God with his people, yet so blind to the Messiah having come. Paul saw himself as one who was fulfilled in his understanding from Judaism. And so he was conscience clear and he was confident going back but he was also realistic and knew this could mean his death. The last six chapters of the book of Acts are basically about his various interactions with rulers and religious leaders. Have you ever wondered what made him so bold? I know he's an apostle and we think like that. Well he was Paul but Paul says many times in different ways follow me as I follow Christ. Now we can't be apostles but we could be put in spots where we are supposed to be speaking up for God. We're supposed to say the right thing in a moment that seems difficult. And we become cowards often, or we're quiet, or we we think, well, I'm still a Christian, but I'm not going to speak up on this, or I'm just going to lie low. I'm not going to bring attention to myself. And certainly there's wisdom about when and where to speak up. But when you see Paul in in the positions he finds himself, or that God places him in, it inspires us, it encourages us to speak what is true, And to fear God, not man. And I don't mean be scared of God. Know that he is our provider, the sovereign savior, the one who watches over us, who controls all things. And we should be mindful of him and his will, not the will of man or what man says they may do to us. This is what makes Paul so bold in his witness. It's even more personal than just knowing God is sovereign and in control. This has to do with the legalist, moralist, miserable, striving Pharisee named Saul meeting Jesus Christ, and realizing that Christ loved him and made him his own. Saul became Paul when he experienced the saving love of Christ. And so his life was forever changed, and his fear of man subsided because of his fear, his healthy fear of God who loved him. Later, when he was writing from a Roman prison to the Philippians, he says the following, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We see what motivates Paul. And this is inspirational, motivational for us as believers today. F.F. Bruce was the foremost scholar on the Apostle Paul. He studied Paul's life and letters and lectured and spoke on Paul's life and letters for over 50 years. He wrote a summary book about Paul called The Apostle of the Heart Set Free, and he wrote the following summary that I think gives us some insight on what motivated or carried Paul in his mission. Bruce writes, where love is the compelling power, there is no sense of strain or conflict or bondage in doing what is right. The man or woman who is compelled by Jesus' love and empowered by his spirit does the will of God from the heart. Paul could say from experience, 2 Corinthians 3, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul's salvation, Paul's sense of God's hold on him, his loving hold on him, this compelled him forward to have the courage he needed to fulfill the mission that Christ gave him. When we read of Paul standing before such powerful councils of men, we are amazed he endured beatings and floggings and mistreatment for years, but still came back for more. Now, in an approach to Jerusalem that was much like Jesus' final approach, here's Paul standing before a Roman commander and a Jewish ruler. A Jewish ruler ship, for that matter, both having the power to kill him. Later, reflecting upon his experiences when he writes the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, "...for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God." If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. This is what drives Paul. And if we're wondering how to be more brave, or to have more courage, or to stand up for what God calls us to stand up for, it comes from being completely in tune with Who we are in Christ and the love we have from God through Christ. Compelled by God's eternal hold on him, Paul stood firmly for the truth. Constrained by the love that God showed him in Christ, Paul could be a bold witness. He didn't fear man any longer. He knew who the right one to fear was. Having met the true and living God through Christ, he's no longer guided by the fear of man. And if you think about it, just pause for a moment. Almost everything you're worrying about right now, everything has some connection to being afraid of what people think of you or what they can do to you. So this is a liberating idea that we learn from Paul as he exemplifies it in his life. As we analyze this informal hearing with the Jewish Sanhedrin, we'll see three features. First of all, you'll notice Paul starts by saying he has a clear conscience. Isn't that what people really want? From guilty conscience to clear conscience. We have a guilty conscience. How can it be clear? And Paul says he has a clear one. Also, I want you to notice the boldness that Paul speaks with and what he actually does when he manipulates this meeting. He knows it's an unjust meeting. It can't turn out good. So he he sees a a spot to to get into, to wiggle into, and, and break it down so that he can live to fight another day, to discuss another day. Remember, a lot of this was brought on because Claudius Lysias just wanted to know why were the Jews so mad at him. This wouldn't be a good venue for him to preach the gospel in its fullness, although he will. There's was, there was more for Paul, and he knew it. And so his boldness tells us something as well. Also, I want you to notice God gives him a special assurance. As he faithfully carries out what God empowers him to do, God assures him of his presence with him. And though we don't have that same audible voice from God, we have the word of God that gives us this assurance we need also in our own endeavor to follow in God's mission. Notice first, the first two verses, the clear conscience that Paul speaks of. He's able to speak with a clear conscience to all these religious people. I mean, you can't get any more religious than the Sanhedrin, and he makes this statement. Verse 1, Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Now, I want you to notice something before we go on. In the chapter prior, when he was speaking to the general Jewish crowd, he said, Brothers and fathers. It was a statement of respect to his, his elders who might have been there. Now he just says twice in this passage, brothers. He's only talking to the the leaders who are there gathered. He knows their intentions. He's pretty sure of it. And he's saying, I'm on equal terms with you, brothers. He didn't say brothers and fathers. He says, brothers. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now that's going to offend because they're upset with him because he has left Judaism. That he's claiming Christ as the Messiah. He's professing the gospel and saying, I'm still Jewish. This is the fulfillment of Judaism. And they're upset by this. And for him to say it's a clear conscience, we get the response, verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, we're not sure what this assembly looked like. It could have been kind of a mob scene with a bunch of people gathered around Paul. He's trying to speak up so people will listen. They're clamoring and murmuring about what to do. It's quite possible he doesn't see Ananias distinctly, and that could be reason for what happens next, which we'll come to this. Uh, but this crowd gathering out of, the, out of the voice, out of all the voices, comes this voice, Punch that guy in the face for saying that. For saying that he has a clear conscience. How dare he say he have a clear conscience? Now, why would that offend so much? Well, two things to consider. First, why does Paul say he has a clear conscience? This is important for all of us because we all have guilt and shame. What would make Paul confidently say or what could make us confidently say, I have a clear conscience before God? Because if you're like me, there's enough things that have happened even today or this last week that would make me say, on, those, on the basis of those things that I've done or haven't done, I can't say I have a clear conscience like that. And that's exactly how the religious people are thinking. They're thinking, how could he say? It's like he's, he's speaking of, not knowing any sin that he's committed. How dare he? When he's left Judaism, it's just completely infuriating to them that the idea that he would say that he has a clear conscience. How could he do this? Well, a little insight we get to what Paul means by this happens when he writes his last letter, probably, to Timothy when he's in a Roman prison, kind of a summary of his life, some of the thoughts to Timothy, a young pastor, not, so much, not a young pastor anymore anyways, at Ephesus. And listen to what he says about conscience and this will help all of us. He writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. So he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So his clear conscience is coming from a gift that God's given him. And it goes on. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. See where his confidence lies? Nor of me is prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He grasps the gospel, and that gives him a clear conscience. He gets that the grace of God has freed him from the just deserts of his sin. So his clear conscience is not that he lived a perfect life or done everything just right, but he stands in a clear conscience because he stands in Christ. That's what he's saying to Timothy at the end of his life. This is what I want to summarize. I have a clear conscience before God, and then he lays out the gospel of God's grace. He says, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, in which now his Been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul's clear conscience was not based on his moral performance, but rather on his relationship to Christ. This is why he could stand so boldly. A Christian, you and I, do not stand in our own merit; we stand in Christ. Now, it is a separate matter, and an important matter, when we sin, we have twinges of our conscience at that level. Yes. But we also recognize, though, that even with that sin, we are in Christ. And the way we attack that sin is by recognizing our legal standing before the God of the universe because of Christ. And we can have clarity of conscience in that way. Now we can honestly face the sins that we commit or that we struggle with because we know who we are in Christ. He is not going to reject us. Because of who we are. This is the confidence Paul has in pretty much everything that Paul is able to do comes from who he is in Christ. I can't emphasize it enough. Paul understood this more than anyone. In Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death, he gets this more than anybody. Those who were in the Jewish Sanhedrin were still under the burden of keeping the law to be saved. So for a man to come in and talk like this, with this kind of boldness, it sickened them. Punch him in the face. That's the response when they hear this. No one in that system could ever have a clear conscience before God. But Paul could say these words on the basis of his position in Christ. Now, before I move on, I want to speak a little more about conscience because probably one of the most common pastoral issues that we deal with are people with a guilty conscience or shame or guilt associated to something that's happened in their life. And if you know the gospel, you know that's the first level. That's the level that will help you through that and even overcome it. But it's worth repeating. It's worth thinking about again because we fall into all these ways of coping with our guilt in our conscience. What are the ways you think people deal with, or that we deal with, a guilty conscience? The way you see it societally, most popularly, is just to rationalize sin. To say that I shouldn't feel guilty about this or that sin because it's really not that bad. And just because, you know, an old archaic religious system says it is, doesn't mean it's really that bad. And so we rationalize it. We kind of use our intellectual powers to make whatever that action is less sinful or not sinful at all. That's the most common way people cover a guilty conscience. Um, they, are, they feel guilty about it, um, but they answer it by saying, we should feel guilty about it. It's not bad. Now, they're still miserable, and no matter how much they say it's not bad, something inside tells them it is, but that's the most common mechanism people use to fight off a guilty conscience. Another way people deal with it is just by substances. It doesn't matter what it is. It can turn to alcohol or drugs or to food or to whatever kind of thing you can imagine um, just to, in some way, quell Uh, their conscience, or to numb it, or to take their mind off of it. I saw an interview just recently with uh, the bass guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm sure you're all interested, but his name is Flea. He's one of the best bassists ever. He was basically on drugs for 15 years of his career. In about 20 years, he got off of drugs. He said, the problem when I got off of drugs is now I started to feel stuff, started to feel the pain, because he was doing it just to cover the pain. So substances are another way people will numb their conscience or a mechanism they we'll use to not have to think about their guilt. Also, some people will use activities. Just stay so busy with your hobby, your job, or your activities that you don't think about your moral situation. These are all ways in which we cover over a guilty conscience. And in our fast-paced culture, we know of all of these, don't we? But here's the worst one, the absolute worst way to deal with your guilty conscience. Religion. Nothing's worse. John Piper said it this way. The oldest and most revered tactic for avoiding the misery of guilt is religion. This tactic may be the most deceptive because it comes closest to the truth. It recognizes the ultimate cause of guilt is that there is a righteous God whose will for his creature is ignored or defied. It recognizes that under every pang of conscience in the human soul, there is the silent, often unexpressed conviction, I have gone against God. The means that religion has developed to deal with this guilt is to try to placate or appease God with good works or religious ritual. Religious people know they owe God a great debt for their disobedience, but they often make the terrible mistake of thinking that they can pay it back through good works and the performance of religious duties. I hope you're not in church because you're trying to pay back or you're trying to earn something. That's not the reason why you should have come here this morning. Now, I'm glad you did come here because now you can hear the gospel. The reason why you're here is to bring glory to God. The reason why you can bring glory to God is because he has set you free through Christ by giving you faith in him so that you rest in Christ and his merit, not your merit. In fact, you know nothing you bring is an offering to God. Only what is done for you in Christ counts for anything. And that's why you want to come, is to worship him for that. But religious rites and rituals and just being religious, that's the biggest guise and the biggest guide to hell there is. Because it takes one's conscience, it makes them feel like they can appease it or solve it by just doing some rites, fulfilling some practices. This describes the Judaism that Paul was confronting. So it explains why Ananias was so upset with the statement, I have a clear conscience before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the only way our conscience will ever be truly clear, is that when we are in Christ, when we are placed in him by faith, then from that place we can begin to deal with the sin that assails our life. But our conscience can be clear. Now let's analyze the bold witness we see of Paul, and it's a bold one. It's, it's, it's Pauline for sure. Verse 3. So the response Paul has to Ananias after Ananias says, somebody punched that guy in the face. Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now his, Paul's knowledge of the law was as good as anybody's. So he knew that there were at least two places Ananias, and you didn't know who was speaking at this point, we assume, he doesn't know who's saying it, but he knows that that man doesn't know the law in fullness because in, at least in Leviticus 19, chapter, verse 5, you should do no justice in your court, it says, to the Jewish people. And then the extra-biblical laws say specifically, you can't strike an Israelite in the face. So he is saying to this voice who speaks, you whitewash wall, you're judging me according to the law, yet you're contrary to the law yourself. Those who stood by then told Paul something that he apparently didn't know. Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he quotes again from the law. Now, there is an interesting debate that has arisen over the years over, did Paul know that he was the high priest? Now, one take, Calvin and Augustine both agree he knew, and he was simply saying that Ananias was not worthy of being the priest. I didn't know this guy was worthy of being the priest. You're calling him the priest? That's what they think he means. Some say that it was a matter of this crowd was so vast, it was an informal hearing, they weren't wearing their normal robes, and so a voice comes out of the crowd, punch that guy in the face, and he says to him, you whitewash wall, and doesn't realize it's Ananias until it's pointed out, and then he corrects himself. Some others, like John Stott, he said, Paul couldn't see very well, and he just didn't even see who said it. Whatever the case, he corrects course a bit, shows some of his expertise with the law, backs off a bit, but doesn't doesn't take back what he said about the whitewashed wall. Now, this is important because it reveals something of what he thinks the problem is with the Jewish leaders. It certainly goes back to what the Lord Jesus said to a similar group. Remember in Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said. Hypocrites. Hypocrites Teach one thing, but do something different. You are like whitewashed tombs, he says, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Clearly, that's what Paul's saying about this group. Whitewash wall, whitewash tomb. You put a whitewashing over that which is ugly underneath. That's the point. And he's calling him out on this. Now, from this place, he turns to making, taking some control of the assembly. It's starting to lose control. People are saying all sorts of things, and there's a, it's bubbling over, and you could tell this could turn violent. He might not escape this. So notice what he does in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. This is a great ploy by Paul. It's a masterful one. He says, "Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee and, and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial." He divides the court immediately. And how does he do this? The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They were like the mainline Protestants of today. They have church buildings, but they don't actually believe the Bible. They don't believe what it says. They don't believe the miracles it speaks of. They really don't believe Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible. They even reduce down what Jesus might have said. They are the, those are the Sadducees. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the Bible, the truth, the Christ. So they're in the Jewish leadership because they're cultural leaders still. The Pharisees, though legalists, do believe in the supernatural action of God and the Bible's record. And so Paul knows both parties are there. Paul's thinking to himself, this isn't going to go well so we can break this down this way. And also, if I am going to be on trial, I don't want these theological liberals who don't even believe in angels or God or Jesus to have any part of my judgment. So let's blow this whole thing up is what Paul's thinking. And that's what he does. He says, I'm a Pharisee and I'm, the reason why I'm really on trial is because of the resurrection and my belief in it. Well, the Pharisees agree with him, but the Sadducees don't and they're always arguing and debating about this. It's interesting. Um, In 1997, I was coming uh, through licensure process in the Heartland Presbytery. In those days, back in my day, there were four states involved. And so people came from churches that were in rural areas. Some were in uh, urban areas, other suburban areas. So the demographics of the pastors were very different. There were lots of debates. There were always debates going on in denominations about this and that and the other. At that time, though, in 1997... um, the assembly for the presbytery was pretty big. It probably was 100, 150 people, which is pretty sizable compared to what they are now. They are now. And in that group, there was quite a discussion. It was in, in the time, if you remember back to the late 90s, where, where there's the whole debate over whether you have contemporary worship services or traditional worship services. And it was a real stark difference. And then it kind of grew into a blended worship where you have a little of this and a little of that. I'm not here to make a, a judgment on that. I think those are secondary issues. But you can imagine I was on the more conservative side of how I would describe worship order to look. And so a presbyter asked me a question for my licensure what my position was on the Bible's regulation of worship. And I gave a very Westminster answer to the regulative principle of worship, which would have been very traditional and pretty strict compared to some of the brothers who were of a more open contemporary mindset. This isn't about biblical inspiration or anything of that nature, just about style of worship. But at that time, things were more heightened even than they are now. I think people have actually chilled a little on this. But at that time, I said my piece, and a certain person who's actually become quite a celebrity pastor was in our presbytery, stood up and opposed me from the back of the sanctuary. Now, I don't mind a little opposition and a little bit of a rumble. However, I was coming under licensure, and I had to be, very, I had to be on my best behavior. Never mind he only got ordained the year before. He was an expert already at this point, and so he was starting to tell me what I was wrong about. So I just sat and listened to it, but then the guy who was my doctoral advisor who helped me... Work out my whole understanding of worship. Happened to be sitting over here, and all I said was, "Well, I hear you, brother, but um, all I'm doing is repeating what I read in a booklet from Dr. Kaiser." And and he's kind of turned because this is an older man everybody respected. And then Dr. Kaiser stood up and said a few words about my position. And then another guy stood up and said a few words about the other guy's position. 30 minutes later, I was just standing up there, didn't say a thing. It was supposed to be my, they forgot I was even there for licensure. And the presbyter, the floor was going back and forth debating until finally a wise old presbyter got up and said, brothers, we're here to examine this man, not examine everybody's position on this particular issue right now. And it reminds me of this episode here after Paul says, he says the Sadducees and the Pharisees are here, I got an idea. Now, I didn't do it on purpose. I was just trying not to directly confront him and kind of let my mentor have a word with the young man. That's all I was trying to do. Verse 7, And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? See how they're starkly now? They're not even speaking about Paul anymore. Now it's against the Sadducees. That's what happened in the court. Now the problem is this started to turn violent and it was getting lost in the mix what they were there for. And Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, is watching on at some distance or he has someone there to tell him what's going on. Verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. I only want to say to you about this boldness feature insofar as how it might play out in our own lives. Most of us won't have an episode like Paul does, but there are many times where you will be called to make a bold witness for Christ. I think more of those times are coming. It may cost you something in your workplace, in your social circles, whatever the case. Be careful. Don't be rude. We're not saying that. I don't think anybody's saying that. But you may have to be bold and be so with the fear of God, not the fear of man. And that's what you gather here on a high level for sure. It might put us on the outs with some immediately. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the Roman guard, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Because of his boldness, because of his interactions, a witness for Christ went forward among people who would not have heard otherwise. Finally, let's look at uh, the meeting that Paul has with Jesus in the, the final part of this story. Verse 11 The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, We understand this to be Christ himself Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus gives Paul his encouragement that he is with him. Paul probably wondered if he would live through this whole situation for good reason. But Jesus comes to him and says, I am with you. Christ says, take courage. Jesus uses the phrase several times, take courage, in the Gospels. And he always uses it when a person's growing weary and doing something for the Lord. And notice what, what Jesus doesn't say. Well done, you've accomplished the mission, it's over. He says, good job in Jerusalem, now get ready to do the same thing in Rome. Verse 12, we see what happens as an aftermath. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves to an oath, uh, neither to eat nor drink till they killed Paul. We see how serious this is. How serious? I mean, this is 40 people. This is not a small little conspiracy with a couple assassins. This is a large group of people who are absolutely committed, bent on making sure Paul is done away with. Verse 13, there are more than 40 who have made this conspiracy. And so what do they do? They go to the chief priests and the elders who should have said, no, we're not going to do this, but they don't, so they're complicit. It's really more than 40 then in this conspiracy. And he says, basically, go tell Lysias we want to interview Paul some more, and then on his way, we will slaughter him. But Paul has a nephew. I didn't know he had a nephew, except for this passage. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Hard to keep 40 people quiet. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So when Claudius hears what happened, verse 22, the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. God assures Paul of his presence. And in this instance, shows in a magnificent way how he's going to protect him. The Lord lets Paul know he will never leave him. That he's going to give him the courage that he needs. Now, we don't know the end result for us individually, the church, so forth, but we can be sure by the basis of the word of God that he promises always to be present with us. To give us the courage we need in those moments. To even give us deliverance at times from things amazing deliverances. We know this because he's done it before in the past. He could do it again in the future. If he doesn't, he'll still provide for us the grace we need. He'll provide for us what we need to hold up under whatever it is. This promise of his presence is always perpetual. It's constant with his people. He is with us and we can know this. And this among all things probably gives us the greatest fear of God as opposed to the fear of man. God's the one who is sovereign over our life and death, not man. And so with this knowledge, it helps us to carry out the mission that God gives us with courage. Boy, what a violent approach. I mean, 40 people, they have to tear him up for this? Why do you suppose, if you ask yourself, what is so bad about what Paul is preaching here? Well, at the very fundamental level, bringing the gospel to bear would do away with all their systems. All the things that they had built their securities around for their, lively, their livelihoods for that matter, for their security, their identity. Now they thought in their mind, with Christ we don't need any of this anymore, we're nothing. It was a personal confrontation of them in their idols, their gods, replacing with the true God. And they hated this idea. But Paul captures the, the basic idea that natural fleshly man has towards the gospel when they hear it. And you have to remember this. If you're a Christian, you love the gospel, and it's hard for you to fathom, why would someone hate this message? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolish to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's as simple as this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is also a threat to everything our fleshly self holds dear. It is a threat to our self-righteousness. We cannot come to God unless we confess that we have no righteousness of our own. We confess that we desperately need Jesus to save us from ourselves. That is not a message fleshly man or woman wants to hear. It's a threat to our materialism. Jesus tells us the truth that we can't serve two masters, God and wealth. It's a threat to our desire for sex, self-exaltation. For the gospel exalts Christ above all and draws our heart to make much of him. All the things we make idols out of get torn down by this gospel message. In the end, people hate the gospel because the gospel proclaims that Jesus is Lord. Those who confess this truth are saved and find eternal life. But those who insist on being the master of their own fate and the captain of their own ship, so to speak, are doomed by the gospel and so they hate it fiercely. We have to come to true grips with this. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, and this is amazing what God does here. This is not a little effort to make sure Paul stays safe. This is a massive effort. He calls two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. We're going to leave in the middle of the night. We're going to take 600 people to begin with, that's 80% of the force, and then go 35 miles away to Caesarea to make sure that Paul is delivered safely to the governor, the Roman governor, Felix. A dangerous road at night, but he has a huge force guarding him. It wasn't Paul's time, so no one could touch him. He was not afraid of man. He knew that God was sovereignly in control. It's not any of our time until God says it's time. Fear God more than man. You know, Ed Welch wrote a great book that tackles the problem of our fearing man more than God. He makes this kind of summary statement. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. This antidote takes years to grasp. In fact, it will take all of our lives. Listen, wherever you are in the phase of your life right now, be honest. There's someone's opinion you care about more than your Lord Jesus who died for you. I know it's painful to hear, but your college friend is not more powerful than the God of the universe. Your friend on the team is not more important than the God of the universe in their opinion and what they call you to do. Your boss is not more important than what Jesus wants you to do for him. The culture's opinion of us as Christians is not more important than what Christ calls us to. Paul gives us inspiration towards this end and I hope we grasp it because he is saying to us as I follow Christ follow me and this is exactly the kind of thing we need let's bow together as I lead us in prayer Lord we read in first Thessalonians Paul writing we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts Lord God, we are encouraged and inspired by Paul's bold stand in this precarious situation. Give us similar boldness in areas of our lives that require it. Give us an awe and dependence upon you. Indeed, a reverential fear that makes us unafraid of the power, opinions, or actions of people. Indeed, make us to fear you more than man. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Let us together respond by singing a, a victorious song of pronouncement, pronouncing Christ's cross and what it gains for us. 263, we'll stand and sing verses 1, 2, and 3 of Lift High the Cross.